We are in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44 is where we're going to be this morning. If you want to turn your Bibles there, I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, it's okay. There's going to be, the words will be up on the screen. Well, we continue our series looking at uh, Jesus' work as, that he did centered around meals and around food. And last week we called you in particular to be using meals as a critical and core part of your mission in this world, hospitality. And this morning we get to see some of the ways in which we are empowered for that. Mark chapter 6, this verses 30 through 44. Hey, before I do that though, I forgot one thing, because I see them giggling back here like school children. So uh, Luann and Austin are getting married this Saturday. And, um, and they're, I mean, they're not even paying attention. They're so into each other. But, um, yeah, as a testimony to God's faithfulness and his provision. And now let's read about it in God's word. The apostles, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him that all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them coming and going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. That's five loaves and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible words. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But may the word of God, may it stand forever. Well, it's important to get to where we're going this morning um, to see how Jesus provides for us, to see the context of his provision, because it's going to give us direction for our time this morning. Uh, A few four verses earlier, uh, the count right before this feeding of the 5,000, which if you grew up in the church and went to Sunday school, you probably heard this account at some time, the great miracle of Jesus feeding all these people. And by the way, 5,000, it's just 5,000 men. Most likely it's more of a crowd of somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people is the entirety of this crowd. But just a few passages before this, we see that Jesus has sent the disciples out for their first missionary internship. That he sends them out two by two to go and to preach in the surrounding countryside. And they preach and they go into the villages and they cast out demons. But when they come back, it says, when they return to him, Jesus can see that they are exhausted. 
Their first foray into ministry has left them weary and worn out. They have walked, they have labored hard, they have preached hard, they have done labored hard, and they are maxed out. Not to mention that, but they are men who are also weary, not just with hard labor of ministry, but also the labor of sorrow and suffering. You see, at the same time that Jesus sent out the disciples two by two to be going and sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of the kingdom to the surrounding villages, is the same time that a guy named Herod had a party. And his party got so out of control that at some point, somebody, his daughter-in-law, who did a strip dance for him, asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And things were so out of control that he decides to answer her requests. And John the Baptist is martyred, he's put to death, he is beheaded, and this is a great grief for the disciples and many of those who followed Jesus, because before they had followed Jesus, they had been a people who had listened and respected and loved the ministry of John the Baptist and his call and his preaching to repentance. And so these are men who are at the end of a season, a great season of ministry and of suffering and of sorrow. And actually, I find it providential that we came to this text on this particular Sunday in the ministry year at King's Chapel in the course of your year. It is the end of May. Many of our high school students graduated this week. Many of our college students have walked uh, in robes in the last couple weeks as well. Our campus outreach staff have closed up their campus ministry in the last couple weeks. Our community group members have finally shut the door to hospitality, at least for a couple weeks in the last couple weeks. Ministry around King's Chapel is coming to a close, at least as we understand the ministry year, usually from going through the school year, and summer is a different time and a different pace. And for some of you, the month of April and May, the end of the school year, the end of the ministry year, the end of the the community group year is exhausting. We have multiple, we may always make the mistake almost every year of kind of polling our community groups about various things that we'd like like to see different about the coming years. And almost every year, some of our community group leaders go, do we really have to do this every week next year? It is so exhausting To host people week in and week out, there is something exhausting about ministry. Deacons, elders, teachers, students, parents, you're exhausted, and you look up and you go, oh no, it's summer. I'm tired, and now everybody's coming home. I can't even send them out. You are gassed, and you're ready for a break. And Jesus and actually himself is actually weary at this point as well. And Jesus longs to give his disciples a break. What does it say? He says, come away by ourselves. Let's get some rest, because they had no leisure time even to eat. And so they leave the crowds. They're seeking to step away from ministry, to have a season of rest, and to get a break. But then this happens. The crowds chase them down. And can you imagine after a season of pulling all-nighters and doing ministry hard for months and weeks on end, and you get off the boat, and there's 20,000 people just waiting for you? There had to have been, in, in at least the disciples, an internal groan. Oh, come on. We just wanted a little bit of break. They're panting and they're exhausted. They're at the end of themselves. And here comes the crowd crashing down on them. The needs of ministry, the needs of families, the needs of those around them crashing down along them like a wave. And yet, how does Jesus respond? Jesus says he sees the crowd 
as sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on them. And even though he too needs rest, he extends himself. And what does he begin to do? He reaches out and he teaches them, even in the midst of his own personal exhaustion, he teaches all day long, he touches them, he heals them, and Jesus continues to serve and even calls his disciples to serve at what appears to be the most inopportune time, the time when they most need rest. And the disciples are supposed to learn from the example of Jesus. They're called into ministry themselves. And in fact, Jesus asks us to do the same. He asks the disciples that even when they are tired and weary, that sometimes, yes, God in his providence calls you in that moment to still buckle down and move in to ministry. And he says to them, actually looks very specifically at them and calls them into a great ministry. In fact, there's this moment where they, after Jesus has been teaching all day, the interaction, the prime interaction here is about how Jesus doesn't provide for the crowds. It's mostly how he provides for the disciples. Because he, the disciples come to him, and there's this interaction between Jesus and disciples in which someone says, hey, with all these people, there's 20,000 people here. They need to eat. They're exhausted. They're tired as well. And all they've been doing is sitting there listening. We need to send them away to go get food. And Jesus looks at them and says this, you give them something to eat. You figure out how to feed 20,000 people. In fact, in the Greek, it's even more demonstrative. Usually, it actually is the word you is repeated twice. You, you feed them pointing the finger at them and saying, this is your role, this is your ministry. And what I want you to see is this, is that in God's providence, there are times when you have reached what you think is the end of yourself. When you have extended yourself and you are tired and you are weary, and yet there may be moments in God's providence that he says, no, no, I want you to go back in. I want you to move back in towards the ministry I haven't called you off the field yet. There's a call from the, from the Lord here that we are to be a people who keep serving, who keep going, who keep providing for others. Now, this does not mean that you don't get a vacation at some points. The message of the sermon is not, don't go to the beach ever this summer. That's not the message of the sermon. It doesn't mean that there may not be seasons of ministry where you adapt your ministry to fit the needs of your family or perhaps get a season of removing yourself for rest. But what I am saying is this, is you do not get to unilaterally and permanently remove yourself from the field of battle. And sometimes, even when you have good plans to go get some rest, God might disrupt your plans. And in his providence, he might call you into a place of weakness to do ministry. In fact, twice in the epistles of Paul, Paul encourages us and he uses the same statement in both 2 Thessalonians and Galatians 5. He says this, do not grow weary in doing good. You don't ever get to do, get a break from doing good, from doing gospel mission. What he's saying is this. It's not that you won't get weary. It's not that you can't take vacations. It's not that you may have seasons of pulling back in some way, shape, or form. But what he is saying is you are never called to permanently and unilaterally remove yourself from the fields. But here's the question. How do we do that? Because this is a moment in, in in the year, in the calendar year, in the ministry year, in which you are being offered opportunities to serve in the summer. 
You're being offered opportunities to do greater hospitality. The message of last week, as we looked, was this, is invite more people into your home to sit at your table. Feed people that the summer is the best time of the year to do that. Engage in this kind of mission, and yet you're looking at, at, at the time, and you're like the disciples getting off the boat, and you're panting, and you're exhausted, and it's the end of May, and you're going, oh, come on. A message about doing mission via meals, invite my neighbors into my home. So if we're going to fulfill this call, and we're going to submit to God's providential timing in our lives to take on tough ministry, even when we're tired, we need a couple truths from this text. Three things I want to tell you to empower you and to call you into ministry, even when you're tired and weary. To call you into ministry, and like Paul says, and to say, do not grow weary in doing good. The first thing I want you to see from this text is this, is you must embrace the grace of your inefficiency. Excuse me, the, your insufficiency. You see, the, the, what seems to stick out most poignantly in both in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke texts in regards to this is when Jesus looks at the disciples and points at them and says, you are the one who has to feed the 20,000 people. Don't come to me first, you. I'm asking you to do this. And since Jesus knew the nature of the problem, and Jesus was aware that there was a lot of people sitting out in front of him, and he was aware of what it would take to feed all these people, and he was aware that he could feed them, what's the reason for why he would ask the disciples to take on the responsibility of feeding these people? The reason is to teach them something. The reason is to point at them and say, you are completely and utterly insufficient for this task. We remember what Martin Luther said, I think it's so profoundly when he said this, that when we are reflecting on our five loaves and two fishes, really what this means is this, is you bring nothing to the table. If you are trying to feed 20,000 people and you have five loaves and two fishes, that is tantamount to what? Nothing. That is going to do no good at all. That's like trying to jump over a chasm that is 100 yards wide and there is a great canyon in between and you can jump three yards. What good does it do? It actually does less than good for you to be able to jump three yards. All it means is you crash and you burn. But I want you to see here is this, that in this moment, in this moment when you come to a place where God has called you into a ministry that is beyond your capacity, that is beyond your ability, it is there that you actually might begin to become effective. Because you come to terms with your own insufficiency, with your own weakness. And when you realize that you are unqualified for the task that God has given you to do, it's there that that is actually the first step of beginning to be actually qualified for the task. To understand that you are weak and you are small and you are inadequate. When you don't have what it takes. Just think about the various areas that God has called you into ministry. Do you actually have what it takes to be successful in any area of those areas? Just think about parenting. This is one of the greatest frustrations of parenting. You really think you're up to it? The greatest scourge in the church is a parent who thinks that they're up to parenting. They drive all the other parents crazy. All, what we would suggest is if you think you're a good parent, would you please have a few more? Have a few more children, and then perhaps you might grow in the knowledge of your own lack of sufficiency. If you think you got it, this is a problem. 
If any of you think that you can change your children's hearts, you can't. Jesus says, I want you to take your five loaves of bread and your two fish, and I'm, they, they, you, I want you to wade, wade into the impossible task of raising children. And I'm, you know, by the way, your five loaves and two fish, they're not worth anything, so you better step aside and let me raise them. And therefore, you should parent on your knees. If you, listen, what if you, you're, a, you're, not, you're not just being a parent? What if you're actually having to parent your parents? What if you're one of those whose parent has had to come live with you and they have Alzheimer's and they're fading away and you have done everything you possibly can. You've taken to every doctor and looked for every care facility and you have tried to leave them in your home for as long as possible and you have come to the end of your rope. You don't have the ability to care for their needs. You don't have what it takes. What about you who may have a child who's running away? The parent, the parent who has a kid who's addicted and running from you and running from the Lord. You don't have what it takes. What about the friends that you so desperately love that have rejected the gospel over and over again? And it doesn't matter how many apologetic books you've read, how many great evangelistic methods you've used. It doesn't matter how generous you have been that you have come to the end of your ability to share the gospel to them. You have nothing left to give. Here's the point. They are unable to feed the crowd. It's an impossible task. They don't have what it takes. They are not sufficient for it. And at the heart of spiritual maturity and true spiritual ministry is coming to this step that I don't have what it takes. And guess what? Jesus allows us to feel that and actually invites us into that feeling and to the place where we are overwhelmed, where God wants to shatter all illusions to our self-sufficiency. In fact, some of you are not learning to trust the Lord because you have left your life so in control and your life in ministry is so small, you've, you've measured it based on your own capacity instead of maybe heeding the voice of the Spirit who might be calling you into tasks that you look at and go, that is utterly impossible. And that might be the point. For you to see that it is impossible for you because it is here that we might actually begin real good ministry. Now, when you're faced with these kind of places in ministry, and here's, here's what I want to say about Kings to you, Kings Chapel. Because I, my sense, and I love this church so dearly because my sense is the vast majority of people in this church, you are the people who throw yourselves into people's lives. That you exhaust yourselves in the ministry to other people, that you have taken on impossible tasks, that you have done the difficult things, that you are engaged in deep and profound ministry. But there's a couple of responses that we have when someone, where the crowd or others begin to ask something of us in the moment the disciples are at. When they get off that boat and they go, I can't, I got nothing left. And the crowds are there. I think we see a couple of the responses here. What's the response of the disciples about the food? Send them away, Jesus. Send them away. Now, let me tell you, this is death for pastors. But this is the place that we get to very quickly. That there is, and this is a place that many of you parents and many of you doing incredible ministry in this world, what you have come to is when you have been asked to do at your 100% and then somebody else comes to you and knocks on your door and says, hey, can you do this? What's your response? Get away from me. In fact, your response is you want to isolate yourself in that moment. 
Actually, you even can come to, come to a place where you hate people. You know this, Moses, you see this, we actually see this throughout the scriptures. Some of the great, quote unquote, great leaders in the Bible. Moses goes up on the mount, he gets the Ten Commandments of God, he comes down and he sees a needy people who are now worshiping idols, and what does he do? And he goes, that's it, and he throws the Ten Commandments at them. There's very all places where there's even Paul and John Mark, if you remember this in the New Testament, John Mark apparently abandons Paul on one mission trip, and Paul says, you know what, this guy is too needy on mission trips. I am never taking him along ever, 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 ever again. Keep him away from me. And this is going to be one of the temptations that we can face, that the point where you feel exhausted and somebody else asks something of you, that you can actually run and hide, and you can just begin to push people away, and the fear, the fear that may, may ask more of you than you can handle. Here's another way in which you may not respond rightly when God asks you to do more than you can handle is you might actually come to a place of utterly despairing. When you come to a sense of your own insufficiencies and your own incapacities, that you might actually just come to a place of despair. You know, there's an account in the Old Testament of this, that Elijah, after a season of doing great ministry, he actually calls down fire upon, upon a wet uh, sacrifice. God does great ministry from him, but then Jezebel is trying to kill him and kicks him out of Israel, and he goes and runs in the desert, and he comes to this place where he finally flops down, and he looks up to the Lord, and he says, kill me now. Kill me now. Listen, the desire to run off in despair, to give up, to look at your own insufficiencies and your lack of capacity and to look at yourself and just go, I don't have what it takes. And if anybody asks one more thing of me, I just want to go out in the backyard, dig a hole and stick my head in it. So what I would call you to this, I mean, it's interesting. We have, such a, we have such a small calculus when we look at our own insufficiencies, though, if we stay there. And another account of this, you know, this is the only miracle that is in all four accounts of the Gospels. And one of the other accounts, it's so great. Philip, who apparently does some math, comes up to Jesus, and he says this. It would actually, he says, it would take eight months' wages. He's sitting over there with a pen and paper, like doing some calculations. It would take eight months' wages to feed all of these people, Jesus. And Jesus looks at Philip, and he's like, thanks, bud. Like it, was, like, like, it wasn't obvious to me that you guys couldn't feed all these people. In other words, what, be cautious in your estimation of giving to the world based on your own level of capacity instead of looking with faith to the capacity of your Lord. And that leads us to our second point this morning. That the reason why God has brought you to a place of insufficiency where may, he might ask more of you than you can bear and handle is so that you might learn to trust the provision of Jesus. So embrace the grace of your insufficiency and then lead, let that lead you to the trust and the provision of Jesus. Jesus says, oh, you guys can't handle this? Oh, you, you can't feed 20,000 people? Oh, I got it. I, I can handle this, guys. Step aside, boys. I will take care of this. And Jesus, why does, why does Jesus perform this miracle? It's interesting it says that they're in the wilderness, which means they're in, in an area outside of a city. They're not in a city or in a village, they're, but they're within, clearly the disciples say they're within walking distance to places where they can get food. And so this isn't like as desperate as sometimes people would make this out to be. Why does Jesus perform this miracle? Jesus is showing this. 
is that he has the power to provide. He is showing something about himself and about who he is. Miracles are always signs pointing at something. The miracle of feeding the 5,000 or the 20,000 here is not just to say, oh, wow, that's cool. This is not a divine magic trick. It's It's supposed to tell us something about who Jesus is. And what Jesus is doing here is he is connecting himself to the story of redemptive history and to the story of Israel. This miracle takes place during the time of Passover. And what is it that the Jews are celebrating during the time of Passover? God is reminding them about how he liberated them from Egypt. And the Jews, did they liberate themselves from Egypt? Is it because they rose up with their great strength against the mighty army of Egypt and said, you guys aren't going to bully us anymore. Is that what happened? No, they were completely useless. They were crushed by the Egyptian empire. And they had been slaves for how long? A couple days? A few weeks? Had they lost their way? No, they had been slaves for 430 years. They were utterly helpless. They could do nothing to save themselves from their dire straits. And then God brings them out of Egypt and takes them where? Into the wilderness, it says. And they get out there and they realize that they can't feed themselves. What do a couple million people with, in the desert with hardly any water and with no provisions left, what can they do for themselves? They can do nothing. They can lay down in the dirt and they can die. And yet what does God provide for them? He provides them manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And did they get this just once until they could get to the next city where they could get some food? No, he provides them bread from heaven every day for the next 40 years. It's their daily bread, calling out to God, trusting that the Lord will provide for them because he wouldn't let them gather more than one day at a time. They had to get up each and every day and trust that God was going to provide for them. And so here's Jesus. Look at the parallels. Here is Jesus with a whole horde of people out in the wilderness without food. And what does he do? Here it is. Jesus comes and provides bread from heaven. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I, you think Moses provided you bread. No, no. It was God who provided you bread. He's saying that I am Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who provided for Israel in the desert. And he's saying, so too I am Yahweh who will provide you bread from heaven. But he is not simply saying, look, look, I can do divine magic tricks. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something even more than that. Jesus is saying, I am the provision you desperately need. You see, Jesus is going to provide them bread on this day, but will they be hungry again the next day? Yes. He provides them mere bread. But in doing so, if you look at the John 6 parallel text of this, Jesus uses this occasion of feeding the 5,000 to look at them and say this, I am the bread of life. I am the true bread of heaven. Do you know what bread represents in most cultures? How do we think about bread in our world? In American culture, how do we think about bread? We think about bread as bad. We think about bread as carbs. We think about the Atkins diet or the South Beach diet. Bread, no good. Bread is bad. But in the rest of the world, how, what is, how is bread thought of? Life. Life, it's the most basic form of sustenance, which is why every culture in the world has its own wondrous form of bread. In the south, we got biscuits. In the north, they got bagels. In England, they have scones. In the France, they have croissants. In Naan, in India, they have all the different kinds of bread. And what do they have south of the border? They have tortillas, of course. It is all bread. It is what we done with flowers. And G- with flour, not flowers, flour. 
And Jesus says, give, we are to pray and cry out to God to give us our daily bread. Jesus is saying to this, this. And when he says, I am the bread of life, I am the bread of heaven, he's saying, I am your daily bread. You think you need provision. You think you need food. What you really need is me. And what he's saying is this, is your souls will remain tired and exhausted and depleted of energy until you run to Jesus and provide provision in him and what he provides. Let me ask you this, but how do we get the bread of Jesus? How does Jesus disperse the bread in this miracle? What does he do? It says in the account, it says in every, every parallel account that he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke the bread. In Mark chapter 14, there's going to be another scene in which the same exact words are used, in which Jesus is going to sit at a meal with his disciples and they're going to be celebrating the Passover again. And he says he's going to take bread and he's going to give thanks for it and he's going to bless it and he's going to say, this is my body. In other words, the means by which we are people who live upon the sustenance of Jesus means this, is that we are people who daily get up and meditate on this truth. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when you sit at your table with your, with your kids on a Tuesday night and you have a bread roll and you can play this out, that, you know, you can actually use the moment, that trite moment that we've taught our kids to say, little uh, prayers about thanking God for dinner. That's not, just, that's not just like, we're not just checking something off the box. It can actually be a sacramental moment. Not the one giving to the corporate church, but you could, symbolic, you could say, this is the bread that God has given to us. And better than this bread is Jesus has given us himself. And he poured himself out on the cross. He was broken so that we might have him today. And Jesus blesses us. And here's what this text is telling us. When you are weary and you are tired and you have nothing left to give, when you have come face to face with your insufficiency to change the world, to change your children, to change your neighbors, to change the foster care system, to change your parents and to change yourself, when ministry and life demands have exhausted you, run to the provision of Jesus himself. Where he says, I've got this. And my body is broken for you so that you'll be made righteous and whole. So how do we apply this? Those guys are walking around with zero faith. And here's the beautiful thing. That when you realize that you are insufficient and you turn in trust and faith to the provision of God, you begin to see how he is so powerful in the midst of your insufficiencies, right? Paul says it so clearly in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, that God actually uses weakness. And so Paul says, therefore I will boast more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We bring out our five loaves and our two fishes in other words, what we bring out is our nothingness. And Jesus says, that's the best thing you have to offer me. You're nothing. And you see in our weakness, in our nothingness, in our insufficiency, in our running, and we come to Jesus and we look to him for our provision, guess who gets the glory? Not you. Him. Just think about this. Think about the logistics of feeding fifteen to 20,000 people. 
Jesus is sitting there breaking bread. There's just more and more of it. And we're thinking about, how, think about the, the physical expanse that 15 to 20,000 people would take up. And it said that, that the, the disciples were taking baskets of the stuff and taking it to the people, which means this. They were kept having to run back to where to get bread. To Jesus, it was obvious this was not the disciples doing the miracle. It was Jesus doing the miracle. In other words, if you want to do ministry, it means daily running back to Jesus so that he fills your bread basket full, then you might have something to give. Based out of his miraculous work, Charles Spurgeon related this idea of loaves and fish to preaching. He said this, Truly, he who writes, speaking of himself, he who writes this has often felt as if he had neither loaf nor fish, and yet for some 40 years and more, he has been handed a full waiting basket to put before the king's banquet table. You see, it's like anyone who recognizes your own spiritual impotence and the places where you are inadequate, when you run to Jesus, guess what happens? He works abundantly in your weakness. That's why Jesus says later on in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever binds in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 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 And so it's the grace of learning that you are insufficient and running to Jesus and falling on your knees and trusting in his sufficiency. One last point this morning. How do we do that? What, is it might, what might it look like this summer for you to do that? You know, you say, oh, okay. So read my Bible. That's true. Read your Bible. That'd be great. I'm going to give you two, two practice, two disciplines of eating at God's table. Of like the disciples running back and forth. That you're always running back to Jesus to fill you up for the ministry task that he has given you. The first is this. Take the rest that he providentially provides. At the beginning of the text, Jesus is the one who desires to give the disciples rest. In verses 30 through 32, he says, come away and let's go to a, a quiet place. The disciples are tired, exhausted, and they're hungry, and Jesus wants to give them rest. You know, I, I, I referenced it earlier. You know when Elijah is in the throes of depression and despair over his ministry, and he's chased out of Israel, and he's crying out to God about he's the only good, good, decent prophet left, and he's physically exhausted by running away from persecution, and God comes, and he just, he wants to die. What does God provide for Elijah? It says this in 1 Kings 19, 4 through 8, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and beheld and there was at his head a cake of bread and hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then did what? He lay down again. It wasn't, hey, here's one piece of bread. Now get back in there, buddy. It was, hey, it's okay to rest. Go back to sleep. And the angel of the Lord came again. And the second time he touched him, he said, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. What tender words, right? How many of you may have said that this week? This is too much. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We cannot go 100 miles an hour, eight days a week, 
and expect that we will not burn out. Jesus wants to give us rest. And so, oddly enough, you won't, if only God had talked about this someplace. If only he had, had said something about commanding us to rest. Oh, it's in the Ten Commandments. Honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy because God loves you. And he loves time with you. You see, not only in Israel was there the Sabbath rest every seven days, every seven years there was a rest, and every 49 days they just kind of, everything was reset. You see, there are limits to what we can do physically and mentally and emotionally, and God graciously knows this. In Psalm 103, which I've committed to memorizing this summer because it's become simply my favorite text, it says this, the psalmist says, God remembers that we are dust. God loves to care for you. Do you know that? God loves to give you rest. Marva Dawn in her book on the Sabbath keeping says this, a great benefit of Sabbath keeping is that we learn to let God take care of us. Not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. To let God take care of us. Let me say this to you. Based on the word of God and Jesus' love for you, I give you permission to rest. Now, a quick warning. True rest is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And therefore, when you go to the beach this summer, if you find that you spend less time with the Lord on your vacation than when you're at home, that may say something about your priorities of what you believe is real rest. Don't waste your stomach. Get time with the Lord. And and so get time in front of him. That would be a wonderful thing. Rest with him. Take a break. The second discipline I would call you to to enjoy God's table is this. Look up for expectant blessings. What does Jesus do here? Yes, there's the breaking of the bread, and that points to the cross and to the Lord's Supper. But what does he do before that? He looks at the Father, and he asks the Father to bless this bread, to bless this. He was relying on the power of the Father to do this work. Jesus lifts up his eyes, and he gives thanks Listen, when you have no idea what to do, when you have been brought to the end of yourself, you know what you should do? You should pray. But you know what? When you feel like you've got it all going on, when life feels good, you know what you should do? You should pray because it's an illusion. You don't have life all going on. Pray daily for your daily bread, lifting up your hands and blessing to the Lord. You may have heard the story of uh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle. You're familiar with the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, but a number of years ago, they um, experienced immense revival at the church. And it was written about in a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by the pastor named Jim Cimbala. And the revival came in this way. They simply began to pray all the time. The book is about how God is moving his people to pray and how when people, God's people pray, God shows up in fresh and amazing ways. And Simba talks about how God is attracted to weakness. That when we are insufficient, God does amazing things. And in the course of the book, he says what he, he had this account of the time when he was at the end of his own rope. He said his oldest daughter, Chrissy, began to stray from the Lord and from her family. And around 16, she was really rebelling and eventually she ran away from home entirely. 
Someone said he tried everything. He said, I begged, I pleaded, I scolded, I argued. He said, I would offer and bribe her with money to come home to start going to church. He said, for two years, I did everything in my power to bring that little girl home. He said, two years I could barely function. I was so devastated by my daughter's rebellion. He would said he would sit on the front row of the, of, the, of, the, of the sanctuary on Sundays getting ready to preach and would simply cry through the worship service every week. And he found himself, he would tell anybody and everything about how awful it was and how terrible it was and how he was doing anything and everything he could to bring his daughter home until one day he felt like the Lord told him this, stop crying and stop talking to everybody about it. You need to just simply spend time with me. And he began to pray day in and day out with conviction and faith that the Lord restore his daughter. He stopped trying to chase after her, stopped trying to bribe her to come home. He stopped trying to call her every single day. He stopped trying to tell everybody else about his problems. He simply told it to the Lord day in and day out. Then one Tuesday night at their weekly prayer gathering, he was leading the church through a prayer time about some major things going on in the church and in the city and one of the pastors gave him a note that had come from a woman in the church in which the note had said this. She said, I think we need to stop right now and we need to pray for your daughter, this whole congregation. And despite the fact that he had told many people about it, many people in their church, it was a quite a large church, didn't know what was going on with his daughter. And so he stopped and he said this. He shared with the congregation all that had been happening with his daughter's rebellion and all his attempts. And he simply said, he stopped and said, will you just simply pray for my daughter right now? And he said it didn't, not a moment went by before he said it, there was an audible cry and groan that just rose up in the whole sanctuary. He said literally that church turned into a labor room. He was literally, it was like the sound of groaning and crying, crying, cried up from people after people as they raised their voices in unison, crying out for his daughter and their longing to see her restored. He said he went home that night and he told his wife, it's over. And she said, what's over? And he said, if there is a God in heaven, then the whole nightmare is over and our daughter will come home. 32 hours later, he was sitting up, shaving in his bathroom upstairs and his wife came in quietly and she said, you have to come downstairs. She's here. She's here. And he went down into the kitchen, and she was there, face down on the floor, crying and grieving over her sins. And she asked for God's forgiveness, and she asked for her father's forgiveness, and she clung to his legs. And he went down, and he reached down, and he grabbed her and picked her up. And a few minutes later, when she was able to kind of get some words out, she said this, who was praying for me on Tuesday night? And he said, what do you mean? And she said, someone was praying for me Tuesday night because I woke up in the middle of the night, Tuesday night, in utter darkness, completely afraid. But in that moment, God said this to me, I still love you and I am chasing after you. And I knew in that moment that I had to come home. That is someone who had done all that he could do as a father. He had done everything in his own strength. And in his weakness, he took up the great mantle of prayer. You ever had this experience I feel like this a lot. In a world where we're a globalized world where you can know about every single problem that there is in the world. You can know about abortion and how awful that is. You can know about racial injustice. You can know about abused women. You can know about sex trafficking. You can know about all sorts of injustices. You can know about all the sorrows of our foster care system. Doesn't it overwhelm you? 
It is overwhelming to sit on our elder boards. It is, you literally, I have elders who constantly, when I go on to come, I have an elder who wants to quit all the time because he said, this is too much. I stay up all the time for all these problems. And that's in this, like, you're, a, you're like a socially acceptable group of people. And your lives are so screwed up that it, 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 it's flattened us and put us on our faces in prayer. Why? Because we don't have what it takes. And this is why prayer is so awesome. Because when you, you don't have the reach to engage with all the problems of the world, but guess what? Your mighty God does. And when a church begins to understand the grace of their insufficiency and that their God is awesome, guess what happens to that church? They start to pray. They start to pray a lot. So brothers and sisters, are you at the end of your rope? And is perhaps God giving you more than you can handle? Praise the Lord and get on your knees. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, my, my expectation is that there are those in this room who are overwhelmed by life. And they're tired and they're weary. So, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray as an act of repentance that those folks right now would look at you and put their hands out and simply say, God, I don't have it. I don't got what it takes. What an awesome act of repentance. Lord, we cry out to you and we put ourselves before you and we would ask that you would remember that we're dust and that we don't have what it takes to reach our neighbors and to engage our children, to love those in our fraternity or sorority houses, to love our parents or our brothers or sisters. We don't have it, God. And so Jesus, would you come provide for us? And would you fill us with yourself? Oh, bread of heaven, we ask for our daily bread. Would you give us what we need to do what you've called us to do today? And Lord, would we feel that so desperately that tomorrow and the next day and the next day that we would find ourselves calling out to you for our daily bread, amazed at your provision, amazed at your grace and all that you've done. Lord, we look forward with expectancy that you're going to do great things as you answer these prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.